Good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, first, uh, I did want to bring you uh, greetings from Chalice Christian Church. I, I hope most people know that um, Chalice Christian Church was founded um, by community. Uh, we are the beneficiary of an effort uh, by Community Christian Church to uh, create a congregation in Gilbert. And so I'm forever indebted to your work in doing that. Thank you um, very much. I can tell you that um, Chalice continues to be a place where we practice radical hospitality. Our rainbow flag is on an electric sign. We don't have a bell tower, but we've got our rainbow flag. We um, encourage curiosity, uh, including heresies. We say, come and find out which the name of your particular heresy is. And um, we practice um, a real involvement in our community, taking our lead from you as well. In addition to things like I help, um, I would love to talk to anybody here um, about what we're doing for predatory lending, which is a new ministry that's taken two years to get off the ground, but it's something we're doing, and it's, it's uh, pretty exciting. Um, also, um, as Pat said, uh, I'm an attorney, and I make sure that people know that. The bar asked me to do that because, you know, we get such a bad rap as being attorneys. So when we coach Little League and do other things, we like to remind people, hey, uh, you know, uh, we do, we're nice people too sometimes. Um, and, of course, that means I'm not a minister. So that either means you can disregard what I have to say because I don't have a Master's of Divinity, or perhaps it means that I can say some things um, that maybe pastors wouldn't be able to say. And we'll find out which one of those is true in about 20 minutes here. All right. Um, I love this idea of the season of creation uh, and celebrating the different um, stages of this with the feast day on St. Francis that you guys are doing. I think it really matches well, too, with uh, community Christians' reputation as being um, a people who take its obligation to God's creation very seriously. And um, uh, Doug uh, did provide me the scriptures that he preached on last Sunday, and so that was nice, and he sort of, so I could help understand the flow of the, of the various seasons. Um, I'll point out, however, um, that Doug's scriptures were a nice psalm about a tree, and then a nice story about Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he. Um, my scripture is about being cast out of the Garden of Eden and the first murder. So I don't know if Doug left the hard work for me or not, but it seems like it's a little bit darker, um, frankly, than what uh, Doug had. And I will tell you, uh, honestly, um, this feels to me a little bit like when a client pays me a good sum of money to research whether the client has a case. And I do my research, and I find out the client doesn't have a case. And so then I have to have this awkward conversation where I bring the bad news back to the client. And so... I will tell you up front that I have some bad news for you that I'm going to have to bring to you. But what I've learned from bringing bad news is you just have to say it. That if you try to hedge it and you try and like candy coat it, that just hurts everybody. So I'll ask you to uh, uh, bear with me as I uh, bring you what may be some tough news. And the reason for that tough news is that today's scriptures don't just talk about the land. They talk about defiling the land. They talk about the way that uh, Adam and Eve defiled the land with their disobedience and their misuse of the garden. Indeed, the second story from Genesis concerns defiling the land with a brother's blood. And that's where I'm going to start. Um, in 2011, uh, and the details are a little bit fuzzy for me, uh, but I remember seeing my brother Jason's blood all over the bathroom. Um, they lived, uh, mom and Jason lived directly across the street from us. And so, um, I raced over there when I heard that he had collapsed again. And, uh, I found mom there 
comforting him and the paramedics were on their way. It was like last time, but it seemed like there was more blood this time. Uh, the paramedics arrived. They seemed to have an attitude about themselves that they knew that they'd been there before. Maybe I projected that. I don't know. Um, but I felt there was some callousness as they took him away. This is what was happening with Jason. His liver was so hard that the blood could not pass through it. And so his esophagus opened up. The vessels in his esophagus opened up. And he was spitting up and coughing blood as he collapsed. Um, I remember the vision of my mother comforting him as he was on the floor. And I remembered him uttering what would be his last words. I'm sorry. Over and over again. I'm sorry. We went with J Jason to the hospital. But this time the doctors, unlike the last time, were unable to slow the bleeding. They came to us and said the problem is we can't put the blood back in as fast as it's bleeding out. Um, and so with no hope, we asked for something less, and we said, can you take him out of the medically induced coma so we can at least say goodbye? But they could not. For one, they said there's no guarantee he would wake up if we tried to take him out. And for the other, if he did come out, then he would be in excruciating pain. And so my mother and I and my brother, younger brother, uh, Jeff, we told the doctors to stop the life support, and they did, and he died, and he was 36 years old. Mom was living um, in that rented house across the street from us, and she just couldn't live there anymore. That space had been defiled by the blood of my brother. And even though it was right across the street from her grandkids, and even though there were reasons to stay there, she couldn't stay there any longer, and so she moved out. And so she moved out. Because that place simply could not be redeemed. And that's where our story starts in Genesis with Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve had committed a sin in that case so great that they could not stay in the place of paradise. Okay? And their sin was misuse of the garden. Or to be more precise, disobeying God's command with regard to how to use the garden. You see, they were exploiting that garden in a way that was prohibited by God's commandment. And so God cast them out. And God took the earth, Adamah, and turned it against the man, Adam. I think it's interesting to think about the significance of this, about the earth turning against the man as a consequence of the man's sinfulness. Um, you know, we, most of us, I don't know where everyone's from, but sort of live a suburban existence. And I think sometimes we have this image of farming as this sort of bucolic existence where you sit on a porch, maybe you mend some fences, maybe you clear some brush, right? That's not what farming is like, right? Farming is hard work. Farming is pulling an existence out of the land that doesn't want to give it to you. All right? As it says in Genesis, only through painful toil will you eat food from it, the ground, 
all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Some people have actually speculated that this story from Genesis is, contains a cultural memory of when they were gatherers, when humans were gatherers, right? Because honestly, the existence before farming was easier and people were healthier. They lived better lives. You couldn't have as many of them, right? But they lived a better life. I don't know. That's an interesting idea. It would require a pretty good cultural memory. Um, but in any case, Adam's disobedience is treated with a profound punishment, right? Of having to toil with the land, of having to suffer to bring about life. And it's appropriate that it should be compared to the other sort of quintessential example of pain and suffering and labor for life, which is childbirth. The existence of humans is hard, and that's what was recognized by the, gospel, or by the Genesis authors. Now let's talk about Cain. Cain's sin is obviously against Abel, right? He kills Abel, so that's who his sin is against. However, a consequence of his sin is to defile the land. The blood of his brother defiles the land where Cain is, such that Cain has to be cast out. Recall this scripture. God speaking to Cain says, Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Recognize Cain did not violate a law. There was no law. Cain did not violate a commandment, right? God did not command Cain not to murder his brother or to take care of his brother. But what Cain did was profoundly and intrinsically evil. And there was no context to get around it. And Cain knew it. Because Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. And because you failed in that regard, you're cast out. I want to point out something else here. God doesn't stop loving Cain or Adam or Eve. Indeed, God provides a mark to keep Cain safe. You see, God doesn't want the suffering to come to them, but the consequences of their actions is such that they have to have the suffering. In the case of my brother, it's important for me to point out that he didn't commit suicide, not because of some issues I have with uh, condemning people who suffer so much they commit suicide, not because of that, but because I want to point out that he wanted, in a way, to live. Okay? But the consequences of his actions were such that, that it was inevitable that he would die. God wanted Cain to be blessed. But the consequences of Cain's actions were such that it was inevitable that he would be cursed. These stories about Adam and Eve and Cain give us some insight into the relationship between the creation and the community. Okay? They direct us, though, primarily towards the irreparable harm that we as humans can cause to the relationship with God and the relationship with the community. But I will submit to you that the authors of these stories and the hearers of these stories could never imagine what modern humans are capable of doing. Um, in the material that Doug provided me with this, the commentaries that came along, uh, Chad Myers points out that this idea of land as possession that we have is totally foreign in the scripture. That instead the scripture thinks about the land as uh, a mother, right? If you think about it, Adam comes from the land, right? Um, it also thinks about the land as sustainer. Our food comes from the land. 
It thinks about the land as altar. That's more when you get into Abraham. Abraham uses the land as the altar, and it says if you want to pile up stones, that's fine, but don't cut the stones. God made the stones the way they should be. And then the land is home, right? The home of the people, Israelites, when they come back to home, but also home as in we came from dust and we go back to dust. Those are the ideas of what the land is for. Not to be possessed, not to be enslaved, not to be exploited, but to be treated as a mother, as a home, as an altar, as a sustainer. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I'm thinking about now the brothers that are the animals on this planet. Some have suggested that we are entering an actual an age of humans, an epoch, a geological epoch called the Anthropocene, because we as human beings have changed the very chemistry of the earth. The amount of nitrogen in the ground is affected by us as humans. The acidity of the oceans is affected by human existence. The concentration of carbon dioxide is affected by human existence, and by any reasonable measure, we are currently experiencing a mass extinction on par with the mass extinctions that name other epochs. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In a report titled Toxic Waste, Race, and 20, there was a 20-year study of where people live in relation to toxic waste dumps. Half of the people that live within two miles of toxic waste dumps are people of color. A person of color is twice as likely to live within the fence line as a white person. A study from the CDC found that 11% of black children are suffering from lead poisoning as compared to 2% for white children. You see, it's not just harming the land, it's also harming our brothers, just like Cain did. Listen to your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. As the children of workers who came to this country, when their parents, when they were babies, as they are the targets of deportation, as we hear lies and slanders against the men and women who work the fields so that you and I can eat comfortably in our houses. Are we going to watch as the children most capable of raising their voice for the exploited are deported and sent away by a movement of fearful, cowardly racists who are hell-bent on creating a white supremacy? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Let's not forget that the boundaries of this nation were set by acts of genocide. Let's not forget that the industry and institutions of this nation are founded on stolen labor. Let's not forget that today we run pipelines through sacred lands of native people. And when they resist, we use force and violence to subdue them today. Let's not forget today, a black man is five times as likely to be in jail as an Arizonan. And Arizonans are the most incarcerated population in the world. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Okay. 
How about answers? For something of a respite, we turn to the Apostle Paul. Because Paul addresses this issue of a sin that dates back to Abraham and runs forward. Um, I will tell you, I reject this idea of that a baby is born sinful, which is sometimes what the notion of original sin comes from. But what I don't reject, what I do think is true, is that even a baby born today comes into the world with the cumulative consequences of our collective sinfulness. Do you see what I'm saying? We have established a world that has problems that build up in response to our sinful nature, and that baby born today is now going to have to address it. As a matter of fact, you may even say that the repayment of the debt caused by our abuses of the land and by the abuses of our fellow humans rests squarely on the shoulders of the youngest among us. But what does Paul say? Paul reminds us of the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes from Romans, For if by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, death reign through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So I do want to pause and recall, ask you to remember that we do benefit from the grace that is Jesus Christ. The grace that Christ offers that we didn't earn, that is there for us to accept. But unfortunately, now we have to see what Jesus said about how that grace works. Because Jesus is faced with Pharisees who describe a sign in this reading today, right? And first off, have the Pharisees not been watching all the healing and preaching and turning water to wine? It's curious that at this juncture, they need another sign. But in any case, the Pharisees ask for another sign. And what is Christ's response? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice that first thing Christ points to is this intimate betrayal of that generation. The metaphor of Israel as an adulterous woman is used um, by several Old Testament prophets to evoke this idea of an intimate defiling of a relationship, of taking something most personal, that relationship between a people and God, and defiling it. All right, that's, that's the, that is the metaphor that Christ is evoking. I think when we talk about the exploitation of creation through the misuse of land, when we talk about the practice of race-based chattel slavery and Jim Crow and the things that followed after, when we talk about genocide against native peoples, that to me is the kind of intimate betrayal that Christ Jesus is talking about when he looks at the Pharisees and says, you wicked and adulterous generation. But what is Jesus' sign? Death. Jesus says that the sign will be he's going into the ground. But in three days, returning. In three days, returning. Of course, he's not resuscitated, as you know, but resurrected, right? In fact, the resurrected Christ is unrecognizable to his followers, as you'll recall on every Easter story you've heard. Because the resurrected Christ is a new thing. He is transformed. Christ brought all kinds of people back from the dead, just resuscitated them. Elijah did that. Resurrection is coming back transformed. 
Um, if you're a fan of Joseph Campbell and the hero story, that's a part of the hero story, is that you go into the belly and then you come back transformed. So that's what we're talking about. What Christ's answer to the sign that they asked for is there will be transformation. And so that's what I want us to think about right now, all of us in this room right now. I want you to actually listen to your brother's blood cry out. I want you to reflect on what power do you have, personally and collectively, and realize that you also have the grace of Jesus Christ to go with you. And think about what can you do to respond to these sins that I have described. Imagine that your life, no, your immortal soul depended on it. Think about what can you do about the sin of callous and thoughtful use of the environment. The sin of burying mountains of trash into Mother Earth that is clearly unsustainable. The sin of pipelines and of exploitation, of putting our children next to dump sites and freeways, but actually not our children, other people's children. Think actively right now, what can you do about it? Imagine that for whatever actions you're thinking about right now, that you could devote your entire life to it. Imagine that you could devote all of you have earned and all that you have done and all of your power into this solution. Would it be enough? And even if it isn't enough, isn't it worth it? In the week before his death, my brother Jason tried to stop drinking. He was unsuccessful. And frankly, the damage to his liver was done, but he tried. That's important to me. There's something noble about that to me, that to the very end, he struggled. He didn't give up. And I think that is something for us to take from this passage. When Christ referred to Jonah, he goes on to talk about Nineveh, which is where Jonah goes to preach. And if you recall, Nineveh repents. And God shows mercy on Nineveh. And thus God spares the inhabitants, including many animals, it says in the book of Jonah. So I don't know where our planet is, okay? I don't know if we are past the point of no return. And I don't know if it's possible for us to turn things to make it better, particularly when we have a group of people who are organized to say there is no problem. I don't know. I don't know where we are with our communities and whether it's possible for us to repair the damage of generations and generations of wickedness. I don't know. But I do know that Christ Jesus invites us to transformation, to take up our cross and follow him. And so I implore you to commit your hearts to that work today. Let us follow Christ into the belly of the fish and let us emerge transformed as an individual, as a church. Let us do what is impossible that the land may be redeemed. Amen.